Chapter 5 of The Small Bachelor by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 1. Madame Eulalie peered into the crystal that was cupped between her shapely hands. The face that had caused Hamilton Beamish to jettison the principles of a lifetime was concentrated and serious. The mists begin to clear away, she murmured. Ah, said Mrs. Waddington. She had been hoping they would. There is someone very near to you. A spirit, said Mrs. Waddington nervously, casting an apprehensive glance over her shoulder. She was never quite sure that something of the sort might not pop out at any moment from the corner of this dim-lit, incense-scented room. You misunderstand me, said Madame Eulalie gravely. I mean that that which is taking shape in the crystal concerns someone very near to you, some near relative. Not my husband, said Mrs. Waddington in a flat voice. The woman, careful with her money, she did not relish the idea of handing over ten dollars for visions about Sigsby H. "'Does your husband's name begin with an M?' "'No,' said Mrs. Waddington, relieved. "'The letter M seems to be forming itself among the mists. "'I have a stepdaughter, Molly.' "'Is she tall and dark?' "'No, small and fair.' "'But it is she,' said Madame Eulalie. I see her in a wedding dress, walking up an aisle. Her hand is on the arm of a dark man with an eyeglass. Do you know such a person? Lord Hanstanton. I do seem to sense the letter H. Lord Hanstanton is a great friend of mine and devoted to Molly. Do you really see her marrying him? I see her walking up the aisle. It's the same thing. No, for she never reaches the altar. "'Why not?' asked Mrs. Waddington, justly annoyed. "'From the crowd a woman springs forth. She bars the way. She seems to be speaking rapidly with great emotion, and the man with the eyeglass is shrinking back, his face working horribly. His expression is very villainous. He raises a hand. He strikes the woman. She reels back. She draws out a revolver, and then—' "'Yes?' cried Mrs. Waddington. "'Yes?' The vision fades, said Madame Eulalie, rising briskly with the air of one who was given a good ten dollars' worth. But it can't be. It's incredible. The crystal never deceives. But Lord Hanstanton is a most delightful man. No doubt the woman with the revolver found him so, to her cost. But you may have been mistaken. Many men are dark and wear an eyeglass. What did this man look like? What does Lord Hunstanton look like? He is tall and beautifully proportioned, with clear blue eyes and a small moustache which he twists between the finger and thumb of his right hand. It was he. What shall I do? Well, obviously it would be criminal to allow Miss Waddington to associate with this man. But he's coming to dinner tonight. Madame Eulalie, whose impulses sometimes ran away with her, was about to say, Poison his soup. But contrived in time to substitute for this remark a sober shrug of the shoulders. I must leave it to you, Mrs. Waddington, she said, to decide on the best course of action. I cannot advise. I only warn. If you want change for a large bill, I think I can manage it for you, she added, striking the business note. All the way home to 79th Street, Mrs. Waddington pondered deeply. 
and, as she was not a woman who, as a rule, exercised her brain to any great extent, by the time she reached the house she was experiencing some of the sensations of one who has been hit on the head by a sandbag. What she felt that she needed above all things in the world was complete solitude, and it was consequently with a jaundiced eye that she looked upon her husband, Sigsby Horatio, when, a few moments after her return, he shuffled into the room where she had planted herself down for further intensive meditation. "'Well, Sigsby,' said Mrs. Waddington wearily. "'Oh, there you are,' said Sigsby H. "'Do you want anything?' "'Well, yes and no,' said Sigsby. Mrs. Waddington was exasperated to perceive at this point that her grave matrimonial blunder was slithering about the parquet floor in the manner of one trying out new dance steps. "'Stand still!' she cried. "'I can't,' said Sigsby H. "'I'm too nervous.' Mrs. Waddington pressed a hand to her throbbing brow. "'Then sit down.' "'I'll try,' said Sigsby doubtfully. He tested a chair, and sprang up instantly, as if the seat had been charged with electricity. "'I can't,' he said. "'I'm all of a twitter.' "'What in the world do you mean?' "'I've got something to tell you, and I don't know how to begin. "'What do you wish to tell me?' "'I don't wish to tell you at all.' said Sigsby frankly, but I promised Molly I would. She came in a moment ago. Well? I was in the library. She found me there and told me this. Don't calmly get to the point, Sigsby. I promised her I would break it gently. Break what gently? You were driving me mad. Do you remember? asked Sigsby. A splendid young westerner named Pinch who dropped into dinner the night before last. A fine, breezy. I am not likely to forget the person you mention. I have given strict instructions that he is never again to be admitted to the house. Well, this splendid young Pinch. I am not interested in Mr. Finch, which is, I believe, his correct name. Pinch, I thought. Finch. And what does his name matter anyway? Well, said Sigsby, it matters this much. The Molly seems to want to make it hers. What I'm driving at, if you see what I mean, is that Molly came in a moment ago and told me that she and this young fellow Finch had just gone and got engaged to be married. 2. Having uttered these words, Sigsby Horatio stood gazing at his wife with something of the spellbound horror of a man who has bored a hole in a dam and sees the water trickling through and knows that it is too late to stop it. He had had a sort of idea all along that the news might affect her rather powerfully, and his guess was coming true. Nothing could make a woman of Mrs. Waddington's physique leap from her chair, but she had begun to rise slowly like a balloon half-filled with gas, and her face had become so contorted and her eyes so bulging that any competent medical man of sporting tastes would have laid seven to four on a fit of apoplexy in the next few minutes. But by some miracle this disaster, if you could call it that, did not occur. For quite a considerable time the sufferer had troubled her vocal cords and could emit nothing but guttural croaks. Then, mastering herself with a strong effort, she spoke. Did you say? You heard, said Sigsby H. sullenly, twisting his fingers and wishing that he was out in Utah rustling cattle. Mrs. Waddington moistened her lips. Did I understand you to say that Molly was engaged to be married to that finch? Yes, I did. And, added Sigsby H., giving battle in the first line of trenches, it's no good saying it was all my fault, because I had nothing to do with it. It was you who brought this man into the house. Well, yes. Sigsby had overlooked that weak spot in his defenses. Well, yes. 
there came upon Mrs. Boddington a ghastly calm, like that which comes upon the surface of molten lava in the crater of a volcano, just before the stuff shoots out and starts doing the local villagers a bit of no good. "'Ring the bell,' she said. Sigsby H. rang the bell. "'Ferris,' said Mrs. Waddington, "'ask Miss Molly to come here.' "'Very good, madam.' In the interval which elapsed between the departure of the butler and the arrival of the erring daughter, no conversation brilliant enough to be worth reporting took place in the room. Once Sigsby said, "'Ah,' uh, and in reply Mrs. Waddington said, "'Be quiet,' but that completed the dialogue." When Molly entered, Mrs. Waddington was looking straight in front of her, and heaving gently, and Sigsby H. had just succeeded in breaking a valuable china figure, which he had taken from an occasional table and was trying in a preoccupied manner to balance on the end of a paper knife. "'Ferris says you want to see me, mother,' said Molly, floating brightly in. She stood there, looking at the two with shining eyes. Her cheeks were delightfully flushed, and there was about her so radiant an air of sweet, innocent, girlish gaiety that it was all Mrs. Waddington could do to refrain from hurling a bust of Edgar Allan Poe at her head. "'I don't want to see you,' said Mrs. Waddington. "'Pray tell me instantly what is all this nonsense I hear about you and—' she choked. "'And Mr. Finch.' "'To settle a bet,' said Sigsby H. "'Is his name Finch or Pinch?' "'Finch, of course.' "'I'm bad at names,' said Sigsby. "'I was at college with a fellow called Follinsby, "'and do you think I could get it out of my nut "'that that guy's name was Ferguson? "'Not in a million years. "'I say goodbye. "'Hello. "'Be quiet.' "'Mrs. Waddington concentrated her attention on Molly once more. "'Your father says that you told him some absurd story "'about being engaged to George?' said Molly. "'Yes, it's quite true. I am.' By a most extraordinary chance we met this afternoon in Central Park, near the zoo. A place, said Sigsby H. I have meant to go a hundred times and never seen yet. Sigsby! All right, all right. I was only saying. We were both tremendously surprised, of course, said Molly. I said, fancy meeting you here, and he said, I have no wish to hear what Mr. Finch said. Well, anyway, we walked round for a while, looking at the animals, and suddenly asked me to bury him outside the cage of the Siberian yak. Now, sir, exclaimed Sigsby H., with a sudden strange firmness, the indulgent father who for once in his life asserts himself, When you get married, you'll be married in the St. Thomas's like any other nice girl. I mean, it was outside the cage of the Siberian yak that he asked me to marry him. Oh, ah, said Sigsby H. A dreamy look had crept into Molly's eyes. Her lips were curved in a tender smile, as if she were reliving that wonderful moment in a girl's life, when the man she loves beckons to her to follow him into paradise. "'You ought to have seen his ears,' she said. "'They were absolutely crimson.' "'You don't say,' chuckled Sigsby H. "'Scarlet. And when he tried to speak, he gargled.' "'The poor simp.' Molly turned on her father with flaming eyes. "'How dare you call my dear darling Georgie a simp?' "'How dare you call that simp your dear darling Georgie?' demanded Mrs. Waddington. "'Because he is my dear darling Georgie. I love him with all my heart, the precious lamb, and I'm going to marry him.' "'You are going to do nothing of the kind.' Mrs. Waddington quivered with outraged indignation. "'Do you imagine I intend to allow you to ruin your life by marrying a despicable fortune hunter?' "'He isn't a despicable fortune hunter.' "'He is a penniless artist.' Well, I'm sure he is frightfully clever and will be able to sell his pictures for ever so much. Cha! Besides, said Molly defiantly, 
When I marry, I get that pearl necklace which father gave mother. I can sell that, and it will keep us going for years. Mrs. Waddington was about to reply, and there was little reason to doubt that that reply would have been about as red-hot a comeback as any hundred and eighty-pound woman has ever spoken, when she was checked by a sudden exclamation of agony that proceeded from the lips of her husband. "'Whatever is the matter, Sigsby?' she said, annoyed. Sigsby H. seemed to be wrestling with acute mental agitation. He was staring at his daughter with protruding eyes. Did, it, "'Did you say you were going to sell that necklace?' he stammered. "'I'll be quiet, Sigsby,' said Mrs. Waddington. "'What does it matter whether she sells the necklace or not? "'It has nothing to do with the argument. "'The point is that this misguided girl is proposing to throw herself away "'on the miserable paint-dabbing ukulele-playing artist.' "'He doesn't play the ukulele. He told me so.' When she might, if she chose, marry a delightful man with a fine old English title who would— Mrs. Waddington broke off. There had come back to her the memory of that scene in Madame Eulalie's office. Molly seized the opportunity afforded by her unexpected silence to make a counterattack. I wouldn't marry Lord Hunstanton if you were the last man in the world. Honey, said Sigsby H. in a low, pleading voice, I don't think I'd sell that necklace if I were you. Of course I shall sell it. We shall need the money when we are married. You are not going to be married, said Mrs. Waddington, recovering. I should have thought any right-minded girl would have despised this wretched finch. Why, the man appears to be so poor-spirited that he didn't even dare to come here and tell me this awful news. He left it to you. George was not able to come here. The poor pet has been arrested by a policeman. Ha! cried Mrs. Waddington triumphantly. And that is the sort of man you propose to marry? A jailbird? Well... I think it shows what a sweet nature he has. He was so happy at being engaged that he suddenly stopped at 59th Street and 5th Avenue and started giving away dollar bills to everybody who came by. In about two minutes there was a crowd stretching right across to Madison Avenue and the traffic was blocked for miles and they called out the police reserves and George was taken away in a patrol wagon and I telephoned to Hamilton Beamish to go and bail him out and bring him along here. They ought to arrive at any moment. Mr. Hamilton Beamish and Mr. George Finch said Ferris in the doorway, and the nicely graduated way in which he spoke the two names would have conveyed at once to any intelligent listener that Hamilton Beamish was an honoured guest, but that he had been forced to admit George Finch, against all the promptings of his better nature, because Mr. Beamish had told him to, and he had been quelled by the man's cold, spectacled eye. "'Here we are,' said Hamilton Beamish heartily, "'just in time I perceived to join in a jolly family discussion.' Mrs. Waddington looked bleachingly at George, who was trying to hide behind a gate-leg table." for George Finch was conscious of not looking his best. Nothing so disorders the outer man as the process of being arrested and hauled to the coop by a posse of New York gendarmes. George's collar was hanging loose from its stud, his waistcoat lacked three buttons, and his right eye was oddly discolored where a high-minded officer, piqued by the fact that he should have collected crowds by scattering dollar bills, and even more incensed by the discovery that he had scattered all he possessed and had none left, had given him a hearty buffet during the ride in the patrol wagon. "'There is no discussion!' said Mrs. Waddington. You do not suppose I am going to allow my daughter to marry a man like that? Tut, tut, said Hamilton Beamish. George is not looking his best just now, but a wash and brush-up will do wonders. What is your objection to George? Mrs. Waddington was at a momentary loss for a reply. Anybody, suddenly questioned as to whether they disliked a slug or a snake or a black beetle, might find it difficult on the spur of the moment to analyze and dissect their prejudice. Mrs. Waddington looked on her antipathy to George as one of those deep, natural, fundamental impulses which the sensible person takes for granted. Probably speaking, she objected to George because he was George. It was, as it were, 
his essential Georgianess that offended her, but, seeing that she was expected to be analytical, she forced her mind to the task. He is an artist. So was Michelangelo. I never met him. He was a very great man. Mrs. Waddington raised her eyebrows. I completely fail to understand, Mr. Beamish, why, when we are discussing this young man here with the black eye and the dirty collar, you should persist in diverting the conversation to the subject of a perfect stranger like this Mr. Angelo. I merely wish to point out, said Hamilton Beamish stiffly, that the fact that he is an artist does not necessarily damn a man. There is no need, retorted Mrs. Waddington with even greater stiffness, to use bad language. Besides, George is a rotten artist. Rotten to the core, no doubt. I mean, said Hamilton Beamish, flushing slightly at the lapse from the English pure into which emotion had led him. He paints so badly that you can hardly call him an artist at all. Is that so? said George, speaking for the first time and speaking nastily. I am sure George is one of the cleverest artists living, cried Molly. He has not, thundered Hamilton Beamish. He is an incompetent amateur. Exactly, said Mrs. Waddington and consequently can never hope to make money. Hamilton Beamish's eyes lit up behind their spectacles. Is that your chief objection? he asked. Is what my chief objection? But George has no money. But, began George. Shut up, said Hamilton Beamish. I ask you, Mrs. Waddington, would you give your consent to this marriage if my friend George Fritz were a wealthy man? It is a waste of time to discuss such, would you? Possibly I would. Then allow me to inform you, said Hamilton Beamish triumphantly, that George Finch is an exceedingly wealthy man. His uncle Thomas, whose entire fortune he inherited two years ago, was Finch, 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 Butterfield and Finch, the well-known corporation law firm. George, my boy, let me congratulate you. All is well. Mrs. Waddington has withdrawn her objections. Mrs. Waddington snorted, but it was the snort of a beaten woman, outgeneraled by a superior intelligence. But... No. Hamilton Beamish raised his hand. You cannot go back on what you said. You stated in distinct terms that, if George had money, he would consent to the marriage. And anyway, I don't know what all this fuss is about, said Molly, because I am going to marry him no matter what anybody says. Mrs. Waddington capitulated. Very well. I am nobody, I see. What I say does not matter in the slightest. Mother, said George reproachfully. Mother? echoed Mrs. Waddington, starting violently. Now that everything is so happily settled, of course I regard you in that light. Oh, do you? said Mrs. Waddington. Oh, I do, said George. Mrs. Waddington sniffed unpleasantly. I have been overwhelmed and forced into consenting to a marriage of which I strongly disapprove, she said. But I may be permitted to say one word. I have a feeling that this wedding will never take place. What do you mean? said Molly. Of course it will take place. Why shouldn't it? Mrs. Waddington sniffed again. Mr. Finch, she said, though a very incompetent artist, has lived for a considerable time in the heart of Greenwich Village, and mingled daily with bohemians of both sexes and questionable morals. What are you hinting? demanded Molly. I am not hinting, replied Mrs. Waddington with dignity. I am saying, and what I am saying is this, do not come to me for sympathy if this finch of yours turns out to have the sort of moral code which you might expect of one who deliberately and of his own free will goes and lives near Washington Square. I say again that I have a presentiment that this marriage will never take place. 
I had a similar presentiment regarding the wedding of my sister-in-law and a young man named John Porter. I said, I feel this wedding will never take place, and events proved me right. John Porter, at the very moment when he was about to enter the church, was arrested on a charge of bigamy. George uttered protesting noises. But my morals are above reproach. So you say. I assure you that, as far as women are concerned, I can scarcely tell one from another. Precisely, replied Mrs. Waddington. What John Porter said when they asked him why he had married six different girls. Hamilton Beamish looked at his watch. Well, now that everything is satisfactorily settled. For the moment, said Mrs. Waddington. Now that everything is satisfactorily settled, proceeded Hamilton Beamish, I will be leaving you. I have to get back and dress. I am speaking at a dinner at the Great Neck Social and Literary Society tonight. The silence that followed his departure was followed by a question from Sigsby H. Waddington. Molly, my dear, said Sigsby H., touching on that necklace. Now that this splendid young fellow turns out to be very rich, he will not want to sell it, of course. Molly reflected. Yes, I think I will. I never liked it much. It's too showy. I shall sell it and buy something very nice with the money for George. A lot of diamond pins or watches or motor cars or something. And whenever we look at them, we'll think of you, Daddy dear. Thanks, said Mr. Warnington huskily. Thanks. Seldom in my life, observed Mrs. Waddington, coming abruptly out of the brooding coma into which she had sunk. Have I ever had stronger presentiment than the one to which I alluded just now? Oh, mother, said George. Hamilton Beamish, gathering up his hat in the hall, became aware that something was pawing at his sleeve. He looked down and perceived Sigsby H. Waddington. Say, said Sigsby H. in a hushed undertone, Say, listen. Is anything the matter? You bet your tortoise showroom spectacles something's the matter, whispered Sigsby H. urgently. Say, listen, can I have a word with you? I want your advice. I'm in a hurry. How long will you be before you start out for this Hoboken clam lake of yours? The dinner of the Great Neck Social and Literary Society, to which I imagine you allude, is at eight o'clock. I shall motor down, leaving my apartment at twenty minutes past seven. Then it's no good trying to see you tonight. Say, listen, will you be home tomorrow? Yes. Right, said Sigsby H. End of chapter five. Chapter six of The Small Bachelor by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. One. Say, listen, said Sigsby H. Waddington. Proceed, said Hamilton Beamish. Say, listen. I am all attention. Say, listen, said Mr. Waddington. Hamilton Beamish glanced at his watch impatiently. Even at its normal level of imbecility, the conversation of Sigsby H. Waddington was apt to jar upon his critical mind, and now, it seemed to him, the other was plumbing depths which even he had never reached before. I can give you seven minutes, he said. At the end of that period of time I must leave you. I am speaking at a luncheon of the Young Women Writers of America. You came here, I gather, to make a communication to me. Make it. Say, listen, said Sigsby H. Hamilton Beamish compressed his lips sternly. He had heard parrots with a more intelligent flow of conversation. He was conscious of a strange desire to beat this man over the head with a piece of lead piping. Say, listen, said Sigsby H. I've gone and got myself into the devil of a jam. A position of embarrassment? You said it. State nature of same, said Hamilton Beamish, looking at his watch again. 
Mr. Waddington glanced quickly and nervously over his shoulder. It's like this. You heard Molly say yesterday she was going to sell those pearls. I did. Well, say, listen, said Mr. Waddington, lowering his voice and looking apprehensively about him once more. They aren't pearls. What are they, then? Fakes. Hamilton Beamish winced. You mean imitation stones? That's just what I do mean. What am I going to do about it? Perfectly simple. Bring an action against the jeweler who sold them to you as genuine. But they were genuine, then. You don't seem to get that possession. I do not. Sigsby H. Waddington moistened his lips. Have you ever heard of the finer and better motion picture company of Hollywood, California? Kindly keep to the point. My time is limited. This is the point. Some time ago a guy said he was a friend of mine tipped me off that this company was a wow. A what? A winner. He said it was going to be big and advised me to come in on the ground floor. The chance of a lifetime, he said it was. Well? Well, I hadn't any money, not a cent. Still, I didn't want to miss a good thing like that, so I sat down and thought. I thought and thought and thought. And then suddenly something seemed to say to me, why not? That pearl necklace, I mean. There it was, you get me just sitting and doing nothing. And I only needed the money for a few weeks till the company started to clean up and, well, to cut a long story short, I sneaked the necklace away, had the fake stones put in, sold the others, bought the stock, and there I was, so I thought, oh, hotsy-totsy. All what? Hotsy-totsy. It seemed to me that I was absolutely hotsy-totsy. And what has caused you to revise this opinion? Why, I met a man the other day who said these shares weren't worth a bean. I've got them here. Take a look at them. Hamilton Beamish scrutinized the documents with distaste. The man was right, he said. When you first mentioned the name of the company, it seemed familiar. I now recall why. This is Henrietta Bang Masterson, the president of the Great Neck Social and Literary Society, was speaking to me of it last night. She also had bought shares and mentioned the fact with regret. I should say at a venture that these of yours are worth possibly ten dollars. I gave fifty thousand for them. Then your books will show a loss of forty-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety. I am sorry. But what am I to do? Write it off to experience. But how's bells? Don't you understand? What's going to happen when Molly tries to sell that necklace and it comes out that it's a fake? Hamilton Beamish shook his head. With most of the ordinary problems of life he was prepared to cope, but this, he frankly admitted, was beyond him. My wife will murder me. I'm sorry. I came here thinking that you'd be able to suggest something. Short of stealing that close and dropping it in the Hudson River, I fear I can think of no solution. You used to be a brainy sort of gink, said Mr. Waddington reproachfully. No human brain could devise a way out of this impasse. You can but wait events and trust to time the great healer eventually to mend matters. That's a lot of help. Hamilton Beamish shrugged his shoulders. Sigsby H. Waddington regarded the stock certificates malevolently. If the stuff's no good, he said. What do they want to put all those dollar signs on the back for? Misleading people. And look at that seal, and all those signatures. I am sorry, said Hamilton Beamish. He moved to the window and leaned out, sniffing the summer air. What a glorious day. No, it isn't, said Mr. Waddington. Have you ever by any chance met Madame Eulalie, Mrs. Waddington's palmist? asked Hamilton Beamish dreamily. Darn all palmists said Sigsby H. Waddington. What am I going to do about this stock? 
I have already told you there is nothing that you can do short of stealing the necklace. There must be something. What would you do if you were me? Run away to Europe. But I can't run away to Europe. I haven't any money. Then assert yourself. Stand in front of a train. Anything, anything, said Hamilton Beamish impatiently. And now I must really go. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for being such a help. Not at all, said Hamilton Beamish. Don't mention it. I am always delighted to be of any assistance. Always. He gave a last soulful glance at the photograph on the mantelpiece and left the room. Mr. Waddington could hear him singing an old French love song as he waited for the elevator, and the sound seemed to set the seal upon his gloom and despair. You big staff, said Mr. Waddington morosely. He flung himself into a chair and gave himself up to melancholy meditation. For a while, all he could think of was how much he disliked Hamilton Beamish. There was a man who went about the place pretending to be clever, and yet the moment you came to him with a childishly simple problem, which he ought to have been able to solve in half a dozen different ways in five minutes, he could do nothing but say he was sorry, and advise the fellow to stand in front of trains and shoot himself. What on earth was the use of trying to be optimistic about a world which contained people like Hamilton Beamish? And that idiotic suggestion of his about stealing the necklace, how could he possibly? Sixby H. Waddington sat up in his chair. There was a gleam in his eyes. He snorted. Was it such an idiotic suggestion, after all? He gazed into the future. At the moment the necklace was in safe custody at the bank, but, if Molly was going to marry this young pinch, it would presumably be taken from there and placed on exhibition among the other wedding presents, so that ere long there would undeniably be a time, say the best part of a day, when a resolute man with a nimble set of fingers might... Mr. Waddington sank back in his chair again. The light died out of his eyes. Philosophers tell us that no man really knows himself, but Sigsby H. Waddington knew himself well enough to be aware that he fell short by several miles of the nerve necessary for such an action. Stealing necklaces is no job for an amateur. You cannot suddenly take to it in middle life without any previous preparation. Every successful stealer of necklaces has to undergo rigorous and intensive training from early boyhood, starting with milk cans and bags at railway stations and working his way up. What was needed for this very delicate operation was a seasoned professional. And there, thought Sigsby H. Waddington bitterly, you had in a nutshell the thing that made life so difficult to live. The tragic problem of how to put your hand on the right specialist at the exact moment when you required him. All these reference books like the classified telephone directory omitted the vital trades, the trades whose members were of assistance in the real crisis of life. They told you where to find a glass beveler, as if anyone knew what to do with a glass beveler when they had got him. They gave you the address of yeast producers and designers of quilts, but what was the good of a producer of yeast when you wanted someone who would produce a jemmy and break into a house, or a designer of quilts when what you required was a man who could design a satisfactory scheme for stealing an imitation pearl necklace? Mr. Waddington groaned in sheer bitterness of spirit. The irony of things affected him sorely. Every day the papers talked about the crime wave. Every day a thousand happy crooks were making off in automobiles with a thousand bundles of swag, and yet here he was in urgent need of one of these crooks, and he didn't know where to look for him. A deprecating tap sounded on the door. "'Come in,' shouted Mr. Warnington irritably. He looked up, and perceived about seventy-five inches of bony policemen shambling over the threshold. Two. "'I beg your pardon, sir, if I seem to intrude,' said the policeman, beginning to recede. "'I came to see Mr. Beamish. I should have made an appointment.' "'Hey!' Don't go, said Mr. Waddington. The policeman paused doubtfully at the door. But as Mr. Beamish is not at home... Come right in and have a chat. Sit down and take the weight off your feet. 
My name is Waddington. Mine is Garraway, replied the officer, bowing courteously. Pleased to meet you. Happy to meet you, sir. Have a good cigar. I should enjoy it above all things. I wonder where Mr. Beamish keeps them, said Sigsby H., rising and routing about the room. Ah, here we are. Match? I have a match, thank you. Capital. Sigsby H. Waddington resumed his seat and regarded the other affectionately. An instant before he had been bemoaning the fact that he did not know where to lay his hands on a crook, and here, sent from heaven, was a man who was probably a walking directory of malefactors. I like policemen, said Mr. Waddington affably. That is very gratifying, sir. Always have. Shows how honest I am, ha ha. If I were a crook, I suppose I'd be scared stiff, sitting here talking to you. Mr. Waddington drew bluffly at his cigar. I guess you've come across a lot of criminals, eh? It is the great drawback to the policeman's life, assented Officer Garraway, sighing. One meets them on all sides. Only last night, when I was searching for a vital adjective, I was called upon to arrest an uncouth person who had been drinking home-brewed hooch. She soaked me on the jaw, and inspiration left me. Wouldn't that give you a soft pine finish? said Mr. Wellington sympathetically. But what I was referring to was real crooks. Fellows who get into houses and steal pearl necklaces. Never met any of them. I meet a great number. In pursuance of his duty, a policeman is forced against his will to mix with all sorts of questionable people. It may be that my profession biases me, but I have a hearty dislike for thieves. Still, if there were no thieves, there would be no policemen. Very true, sir. Supply and demand. Precisely. Mr. Waddington blew a cloud of smoke. I'm kind of interested in crooks, he said. I'd like to meet a few. I assure you that you would not find the experience enjoyable, said Officer Garraway, shaking his head. They are unpleasant, illiterate men, with little or no desire to develop their souls. I make an exception, I should mention, however, in the case of Mr. Mullet, who seemed a nice sort of fellow. I wish I could have seen more of him. Mullet? Who's he? He is an ex-convict, sir, who works for Mr. Finch in the apartment upstairs. You don't say. An ex-convict and works for Mr. Finch? What was his line? Inside burglary jobs, sir. I understand, however, that he is reformed and is now a respectable member of society. Still, he was a burglar once. Yes, sir. Well, well. There was a silence. Officer Garraway, who was trying to find a good synonym for one of the adjectives in the poem on which he was occupied, stared thoughtfully at the ceiling. Mr. Waddington chewed his cigar intensely. Say, listen, said Mr. Waddington. Sir, said the policeman, coming out of his reverie with a start. Suppose, said Mr. Waddington, suppose just for the sake of argument that a wicked person wanted a crook to do a horrible, nefarious job for him, would he have to pay him? Undoubtedly, sir. These men are very mercenary. Pay him much? I imagine a few hundred dollars. It would depend on the magnitude of the crime contemplated, no doubt. A few hundred dollars? Two, perhaps, or three. Silence fell once more. Officer Garraway resumed his inspection of the ceiling. What he wanted was something signifying the aspect of the streets of New York, and he had used sordid in line two. Scabrous, that was the word. He was rolling it over his tongue when he became aware that his companion was addressing him. I beg your pardon, sir. 
Mr. Mortington's eyes were glittering in a peculiar way. He leaned forward and tapped Officer Garraway on the knee. Say, listen, I like your face, Larrabee. My name is Garraway. Never mind about your name. It's your face I like. Say, listen, do you want to make a pile of money? Yes, sir. Well, I don't mind telling you that I've taken a fancy to you, and I'm going to do something for you that I wouldn't do for many people. Have you heard of the finer and better motion picture company of Hollywood, California? No, sir. That's the wonderful thing, said Mr. Boardington in a sort of ecstasy. Nobody's ever heard of it. It isn't one of those worn-out propositions like the famous players that everybody's sick and tired of. It's new. And do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let you have a block of stock in it for a quite nominal figure. It would be insulting you to give it to you for nothing, which is what I'd like to do, of course. But it amounts to the same thing. This stock here is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, and you shall have it for three hundred. Have you got three hundred? asked Mr. Waddington anxiously. Yes, sir, I have that sum, but... Mr. Waddington waved his cigar. Don't use that word, but... I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to tell me I'm rubbing myself. I know I am, and what of it? What's money to me? The way I look at it is that when a man has made his pile like me, and has got enough to keep his wife and family in luxury, the least he can do as a lover of humanity is to let the rest go to folks who'll appreciate it. Now, you probably need money as much as the rest of them, eh? I certainly do, sir. Then here you are, said Mr. Waddington, brandishing the bundle of stock certificates. This is where you get it. You can take it from me that the finer and better motion picture company is the biggest thing since Marconi invented the Victrola. Officer Garraway took the stock and fondled it thoughtfully. It's certainly very nicely engraved, he said. You bet it is. And look at those dollar signs on the back. Look at that seal. Cast your eye over those signatures. Those mean something, and you know what the motion pictures are. A bigger industry than the beef business, and the finer and better is the greatest proposition of them all. It isn't like other companies. For one thing, it hasn't been paying out all its money in dividends. No. Now, sir, not wish to dissent that way. It's all still there. All still there, and what's more, it hasn't released a single picture. All still there. All still there, lying on the shelves, dozens of them, and then take the matter of overhead expenses, the thing that cripples all these other film companies. Big studios, expensive directors, high-salaried stars. All still there. Now, sir, that's the point. They're not there. The finer and better motion picture company hasn't had any of these D.W. Griffiths and Gloria Swanson's eating away at its capital. It hasn't even a studio. Not even a studio? Now, sir, nothing but a company. I tell you, it's big. Officer Garraway's mild blue eyes widened. It sounds like the opportunity of a lifetime, he agreed. The opportunity of a dozen lifetimes, said Mr. Waddington. And that's the way to get on in the world, by grabbing your opportunities. Why, what's Big Ben but a wristwatch that saw its chance and made good? Mr. Mornington paused. His forehead wrinkled. He snatched the bundle of stock from his companion's grasp and made a movement toward his pocket. No, he said. No, I can't do it. I can't let you have it after all. Oh, sir. No, it's too big. Oh, but Mr. Waddington. Sigsby H. Waddington seemed to come out of a trance. He shook himself and stared at the policeman as if he were saying, Where am I? He heaved a deep, remorseful sigh. Isn't money the devil? He said. Isn't it terrible the way it saps all a fellow's principles and good resolutions? Sheer greed. That was what was the matter with me when I said I wouldn't let you have the stock. 
sheer grasping greed. Here am I with millions in the bank, and the first thing you know I'm trying to resist a generous impulse to do a fellow human being, whose face I like, a kindly act. It's horrible. He wrenched the bundle from his pocket and threw it to the policeman. Here, take it before I weaken again. Give me the three hundred quick and let me get away. I don't know how to thank you, sir. Don't thank me, don't thank me. One, two, three, said Mr. Waddington, counting the bills. Don't thank me at all. It's a pleasure. Three. Upstairs, while the conversation just recorded was in progress, Frederick Mullet was entertaining his fiancée, Fanny Welch, to a late collation in the kitchen of George Finch's apartment. It is difficult for a man to look devotional while his mouth is full of cold beef and chutney, but not impossible, for Mullet was doing it now. He gazed at Fanny very much as George Finch had gazed at Molly Waddington, Hamilton Beamish at Madame Eulalie, and as a million other young men in New York and its outskirts were, or would shortly be, gazing at a million other young women. The love had come rather late to Frederick Mullet, for his had been a busy life, but it had come to stay. Externally, Fanny Walsh appeared not unworthy of his devotion. She was a pretty little thing, with snapping black eyes and a small face. The thing you noticed about her first was the slim shapeliness of her hands with the long, sensitive fingers. One of the great advantages of being a pickpocket is that you do have nice hands. I like this place, said Fanny, looking about her. Do you, honey? said Mullet tenderly. I was hoping you would, because I've got a secret for you. What's that? This is where you and me are going to spend our honeymoon. What, in this kitchen? Of course not. We'll have the run of the whole apartment, with the roof thrown in. What'll Mr. Finch have to say to that? He won't know, Petty. You see, Mr. Finch has just gone and got engaged to be married himself, and he'll be off on his honeymoon trip, so the whole place will be ours for ever so long. What do you think of that? Sounds good to me. I'll take and show you the place in a minute or two. It's the best studio apartment for miles around. There's a nice large sitting room that looks onto the roof, with French windows so that you can stroll out and take the air when you like. And there's a sleeping porch on the roof in case the weather's warm, and a bath H and C with shower. It's the snuggest place you'll ever want to find, and you and I can stay perched up here like two little birds in a nest. And when we've finished honeymooning, we'll go down to Long Island and buy a little duck farm, and live happily ever after. Fanny looked doubtful. Can you see me on a duck farm, Freddy? Can I? Mollet's eyes beamed adoration. You bet I can see you there, standing in a gingham apron on the old brick path between the hollyhocks, watching little Frederick romping under the apple tree. Little who? Little Frederick. And did you notice little Fanny clinging to my skirts? So she is, and William John in his cradle on the porch. I think we'd better stop looking for a while, said Fanny. Our family is growing too fast. Mullet sighed ecstatically. Doesn't it sound quiet and peaceful after the stormy lives we've led? The quacking of the ducks, the droning of the bees. Put back that spoon, dearie. You know it doesn't belong to you. Fanny removed the spoon from the secret places of her dress and ended with a certain surprise. Now how did that get there? She said. You snitched it up, sweetness, said Mowat gently. Your little fingers just hovered for a moment like little bees over a flower, and the next minute the thing was gone. It was beautiful to watch, dearie, but put it back. You've done below that sort of thing now, you know. I guess I have, said Fanny wistfully. You don't guess you have, precious? corrected her husband-to-be. You know you have, same as I've done. 
Are you really on a level now, Freddy? I'm as honest as the day is long. Rocket Knight, say? Look at the human moth. Goes through his master's clothes like a jealous wife? Mullet laughed indulgently. The same little Fanny, how you do love to tease. Yes, precious, I'm through with the game for good. I wouldn't steal a bone collar stud now, not if my mother came and begged me on her bended knee. All I want is my little wife and my little home in the country. Fanny frowned pensively. You don't think it'll be kind of quiet down on that duck farm? Kind of slow? Slow? said Mullet, shocked. Well, maybe not. But we're retiring from business awful young, Freddy. A look of concern came into Mowat's face. You don't mean you still have a hankering for the old game? Well, what if I do? said Fanny defiantly. You do too if you'd only come clean and admit it. The look of concern changed to one of dignity. Nothing of the kind, said Mowat. I give you my word, Fanny, that there isn't the job on earth that could tempt me now. I do wish you would bring yourself to feel the same, honey. Oh, I'm not saying I would bother with anything that wasn't really big, but honest to goodness, Freddy, it would be a crime to sidestep anything worthwhile if it came along. It isn't as if we had all the money in the world. I've picked up some nice little things at the stores, and I suppose you've kept some of the stuff you got away with, but outside of that we've nothing but the bit of cash we've managed to save. We've got to be practical. But, sweetie, think of the awful chances you'll be taking of getting pinched. I'm not afraid. If they ever do nab me, I've got to spiel about my poor old mother. You haven't got a mother. Who said I had? A spiel about my poor old mother that would draw tears from the Bullworth building. Listen. Don't turn me over to the police, mister. I only did it for Ma's sake. If you was out of work for weeks and starving and you had to sit and watch your old Ma bending over the wash tubs. Don't, Fanny, please. I can't bear it even though I know it's just a game. I... Hello. Somebody at the front door. Probably only a model wanting to know if Mr. Finch has a job for her. You wait here, honey. I'll get rid of her and be back in half a minute. 4. More than twenty times that period had elapsed, however, before Frederick Mullet returned to the kitchen. He found his bride-to-be in a considerably less amiable mood than that in which he had left her. She was standing with folded arms, and the temperature of the room had gone down a number of degrees. Pretty girl? she inquired frostily as Mollet crossed the threshold. Eh? You said you were going to send that model away in half a minute, and I've been waiting here nearer a quarter of an hour, said Fanny, verifying this statement by a glance at the wristwatch, the absence of which from their stock was still an unsolved mystery to a prosperous firm of jewelers on Fifth Avenue. Mollet clasped her in his arms. It was a matter of some difficulty, for she was not responsive, but he did it. It was not a model, darling. It was a man. A guy with gray hair and a red face. Oh, what did he want? Mowat's already somewhat portly frame seemed to expand, as if with some deep emotion. He came to tempt me, Fanny. To tempt you? That's what he did. Wanted to know if my name was Mowat, and two seconds after I had said it was, he offered me three hundred dollars to perpetrate a crime. He did? What crime? I didn't wait for him to tell me. I spurned his offer and came away. That'll show you if I've reformed or not. A nice, easy, simple job, he said it was, that I could do in a couple of minutes. And you spurned him, eh? I certainly spurned him. I spurned him good and plenty. And then you came away? Came right away. Then listen here, said Fanny in a steely voice. It don't seem to me that your time's that upright. 
You say he made you this offer two seconds after he heard your name. Well, why did it take you a quarter of an hour to get back to this kitchen? If you want to know what I think, it wasn't a red-faced man with gray hair at all. It was one of these Washington Square vamps and you were flirting with her. Fanny. Well, I've read gingery stories, and I know what it's like down here in Bohemia with all these artists and models and everything. No one drew himself up. Your suspicions pain me, Fanny. If you care to step out onto the roof, you can peek into the sitting room window and see him for yourself. He's waiting there for me to bring him a drink. The reason I was so long coming back was that it took him ten minutes before he asked my name. Up till then he just sat and spluttered. All right, take me out on the roof. There, said Mallet a moment later. Now perhaps you'll believe me. Through the French windows of the sitting room there was undeniably visible a man of precisely the appearance described. Finney was remorseful. Did I wrong my poor little Freddy then? She said. Yes, you did. I'm sorry. There. She kissed him. Mullet melted immediately. I must go back and get that drink, he said. And I must be getting along. Oh, not yet, begged Mullet. Yes, I must. I've got to look in at one or two of the stores. Fanny. Well, the girl's got to have her trousseau, hasn't she? Mullet sighed. You'll be very careful, precious, he said anxiously. I'm always careful. Don't you worry about me. Mullet retired, and Finny, blowing a parting kiss from her pretty fingers, passed through the door leading to the stairs. It was perhaps five minutes later, while Mullet sat dreaming golden dreams in the kitchen and Sigsby H. Waddington sat sipping his whiskey and soda in the sitting room, that a sudden tap on the French window caused the latter to give a convulsive leap and spill most of the liquid down the front of his waistcoat. He looked up. A girl was standing outside the window, and from her gestures he gathered that she was requesting him to open it. 5. It was some time before Sigsby H. Waddington could bring himself to do so. There exist, no doubt, married men of the baser sort who would have enjoyed the prospect of a tete-a-tete chat with a girl with snuffing black eyes, who gesticulated at them through windows, but Sigsby Waddington was not one of them. By nature and training he was circumspect to a degree, so for a while he merely stood and stared at Fanny. It was not until her eyes became so imperative as to be practically hypnotic that he brought himself to undo the latch. "'And about time, too,' said Fanny with annoyance, stepping softly into the room. "'What do you want?' "'I want a little talk with you. What's all this I hear about you asking people to perpetrate crimes for you?' Sixby Waddington's conscience was in such a feverish condition by now that this speech affected him as deeply as the explosion of a pound of dynamite would have done. His vivid imagination leaped immediately to the supposition that this girl, who seemed so intimate with his private affairs, was one of those Secret Service investigation agents who do so much to mar the comfort of the amateur in crime. "'I don't know what you're talking about,' he croaked. "'Oh, shucks,' said Finney impatiently. She was a business girl, and disliked this beating about the bush. "'Pretty Mullet told me all about it. You want someone to do a job for you, and he turned you down. Well, take a look at the understudy.' I'm here, and if the job's in my line, lead me to it. Mr. Wellington continued to eye her warily. He had now decided that she was trying to trap him into a damaging admission. He said nothing, but breathed stertorously. Finney, a sensitive girl, misunderstood his silence. She interpreted the look in his eye to indicate distrust of the ability of a woman worker to deputize for the male. If it's anything Freddie Mullet could do, I can do it, she said. She seemed to Mr. Waddington to flicker for a moment. See here, she said. Before Mr. Waddington's fascinated gaze, she held up between her delicate fingers a watch and chain. What's that? he gasped. What does it look like? Mr. Waddington knew exactly what it looked like. 
He felt his waistcoat dazedly. I didn't see you take it. Nobody don't ever see me take it, said Fanny proudly, stating a profound truth. Well then, now you've witnessed the demonstration, perhaps you'll believe me when I say that I'm not so worse. If Freddy can do it, I can do it. A cool, healing wave of relief poured over Sigsby H. Waddington's harassed soul. He perceived that he had wronged his visitor. She was not the detective, after all, but a sweet, womanly woman who went about lifting things out of people's pockets so deftly that they never saw them go. Just the sort of girl he had been wanting to meet. I'm sure you can, he said fervently. Well, what's the job? I want someone to steal a pearl necklace. Where is it? In the strong room at the bank. Finney's mobile features expressed disappointment and annoyance. Then what's the use of talking about it? I'm not a safe smasher. I'm a delicately nurtured girl that never used an oxyacetylene blowpipe in her life. Ah, uh, but you don't understand, said Mr. Waddington hastily. When I say that the necklace is in the strong room, I mean that it is there just now. Eventually it will be taken out and placed among the other wedding presents. This begins to look more like it. I can mention no names, of course. I don't expect you to. Then I will simply say that A, to whom the necklace belongs, is shortly about to be married to B. I might have known it. Doing all those bridge problems together, they kind of got fond of one another. I have my reasons for thinking that the wedding will take place down at Hempstead on Long Island, where C, A's stepmother, has her summer home. Why? Why not in New York? Because, said Mr. Waddington simply, I expressed a wish that it should take place in New York. What have you got to do with it? I am D, C's husband. Oh, the fellow who could fill a tank with water in six hours, fifteen minutes, while C was filling another in five hours, forty-five? Pleased to meet you. I am now strongly in favor of the Hempstead idea, said Mr. Waddington. In New York it might be difficult to introduce you into the house, whereas down at Hempstead you can remain concealed in the garden till the suitable moment arrives. Down at Hempstead the presence will be on view in the dining room, which has French windows opening onto a lawn flanked with shrubberies. Easy. Just what I thought. I will therefore make a point tonight of insisting that the wedding take place in New York, and the thing will be definitely settled. Finney eyed him reflectively. It all seems kind of funny to me. If you're D and you're married to C, and C is A's stepmother, you must be A's father. What do you want to go stealing your daughter's necklace for? Say, listen, said Mr. Waddington urgently. The first thing you've got to get into your head is that you're not to ask questions. Only my girlish curiosity. Tie a can to it, begged Mr. Waddington. This is a delicate business, and the last thing I want is anybody stripping it to motives and first causes. Just you go ahead like a nice girl and get that necklace and pass it over to me when nobody's looking, and then put the whole matter out of your pretty little head and forget about it. Just as you say, and now coming down to it, what is there in it for me? Three hundred dollars. Not nearly enough. It's all I've got. Fenny meditated. Three hundred dollars, though a meager sum, was three hundred dollars. You could always use three hundred dollars when you were furnishing, and the job, as outlined, seemed simple. All right, she said. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm on. Good girl, said Mr. Waddington. Where can I find you when I want you? Here's my address. I'll send you a line. You've got the thing clear? Sure. I hang about in the bushes till there's nobody around, and then I slip into the room and stitch the necklace. And hand it over to me. Sure. I'll be waiting in the garden just outside, and I'll meet you the moment you come out. The very moment. Thus, said Mr. Waddington with a quiet, meaning look at his young friend. Avoiding any rainy gazoo. What do you mean by rainy gazoo? said Finney warmly. 
Nothing, nothing, said Mr. Waddington with a deprecating wave of the hand. Just raining as oh. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of The Small Bachelor by P. G. Woodhouse This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 There are, as everybody knows, many ways of measuring time, and right through the ages learned men have argued heatedly in favor of their different systems. Hipparchus of Rhodes sneered every time anybody mentioned Marinus of Tyre to him, and the views of Ahmed ibn Abdallah of Baghdad gave Perbach and Regiomontanus the laughs of their lives. Perbach, in his bluff way, said the man must be a perfect ass, and when Regiomontanus, whose motto was live and let live, urged that Ahmed ibn was just a young fellow, trying to get along, and ought not to be treated too harshly, Perbach said, was that so? And Regiomontanus said, yes, that was so, and Perbach said that Regiomontanus made him sick. Tycho Brahe measured time by means of altitudes, quadrants, azimuths, cross-staves, armillary spheres, and parallactic rules, and as he often said to his wife when winding up the azimuth and putting the cat out for the night, nothing could be fairer than that. And then in 1863 along came Dalton with his Die Zeitbestimmung vermittelst der Tragbaren Durchgangsstrumens im Vertikale des Parolsterns a bestseller in its day, subsequently filmed under the title Purple Sins, and proved that Tycho, by mistaking an armillary sphere for a quadrant one night after a bump supper at Copenhagen University, had got his calculations all wrong. The truth is that time cannot be measured. To George Finch, basking in the society of Molly Waddington, the next three weeks seemed but a flash. Whereas to Hamilton Beamish, with the girl he loved miles away in East Gilead, Idaho, it appeared incredible that any sensible person could suppose that a day contained only twenty-four hours. There were moments when Hamilton Beamish thought that something must have happened to the sidereal moon, and the time was standing still. But now the three weeks were up, and at any minute he might hear that she was back in the metropolis. All day long he had been going about with a happy smile on his face, and it was with a heart that leaped and sang from pure exuberance that he now turned to greet Officer Garraway, who had just presented himself at his apartment. "'Ah, Garraway,' said Hamilton Beamish. "'How goes it? What brings you here?' "'I understood you to say, sir,' replied the policeman, "'that I was to bring you my poem when I had completed it.' "'Of course, of course. I had forgotten all about it. "'Something seems to have happened to my memory these days. "'So you've written your first poem, eh? "'All about love and youth and springtime, I suppose? "'Excuse me.' The telephone bell had rung, and Hamilton Beamish, though the instrument had disappointed him over and over again in the past few days, leaped excitedly to snatch up the receiver. Hello? This time there was no disappointment. The voice that spoke was the voice he had heard so often in his dreams. Mr. Beamish? I mean, Jimmy? Hamilton Beamish drew a deep breath. And so overcome was he with sudden joy, that for the first time since he had reached the years of discretion he drew it through the mouth. At last, he cried. What did you say? I said at last, since you went away every minute has seemed an hour. So it has to me. Do you mean that? breathed Hamilton Beamish fervently. Yes, that's the way minutes do seem in East Gilead. Oh, ah, uh, yes, said Mr. Beamish, a little dimped. When did you get back? A quarter of an hour ago. Hamilton Beamish's spirits soared once more. And you caught me up at once, he said emotionally. Yes, I wanted to know Mrs. Waddington's telephone number at Hempstead. Was that the only reason? Of course not. I wanted to hear how you were. Did you? Did you? And if you had missed me. Missed you? Did you? Did I? How sweet of you. I should have thought you would have forgotten my very existence. 
Gump, said Hamilton Beamish, completely overcome. Well, shall I tell you something? I missed you too. Hamilton Beamish drew another completely unscientific deep breath, and was about to pour his whole soul into the instrument in a manner that would probably have fused the wire, when a breezy masculine voice suddenly smote his eardrum. Is that Ed? inquired the voice. No, thundered Hamilton Beamish. This is Charlie, Ed. Is it all right for Friday? It is not, boomed Hamilton Beamish. Get off the wire, you blot. Go away, curse you. Certainly, if you want me to, said a sweet feminine voice. But, I beg your pardon, I am sorry, sorry, sorry. A fiend in human shape got on the wire, explained Mr. Beamish hastily. Oh, but what were we saying? I was just going to, I remember. Mrs. Waddington's telephone number. I was looking through my mail just now, and I found an invitation from Miss Waddington to her wedding. I see it's tomorrow. Fancy that. Hamilton Beamish would have preferred to speak of other things than trivialities like George Finch's wedding, but he found it difficult to change the subject. Yes, it is to take place at Hampstead tomorrow. George is staying down there at the inn. It's going to be a quiet country wedding, then? Yes, I think Mrs. Waddington wants to hush George up as much as possible. Poor George. I am going down by the one thirty train. Couldn't we travel together? I am not sure that I shall be able to go. I have an awful lot of things to see to here, after being away so long. Shall we leave it open? Very well, said Hamilton Beamish resignedly. But in any case, can you dine with me tomorrow night? I should love it. Hamilton Beamish's eyes closed, and he snuffled for a while. And what is Mrs. Waddington's number? Hampstead 4076. Thanks. We'll dine at the Purple Chicken, shall we? Splendid. You can always get it there if they know you. Do they know you? Intimately. Fine. Well, goodbye. Hamilton Beamish stood for a few moments in deep thought, then, turning away from the instrument, was astonished to perceive Officer Garraway. I'd forgotten all about you, he said. Let me see, what did you say you had come for? To read you my poem, sir. Ah, yes, of course. The policeman coughed modestly. It is just a little thing, Mr. Beamish. A sort of study, you might say, of the streets of New York as they appear to a policeman on his beat. I would like to read it to you, if you will permit me. Officer Garraway shifted his Adam's apple up and down once or twice, and, closing his eyes, began to recite in the special voice which has a rule he reserved for giving evidence before magistrates. Streets. That is the title, eh? Yes, sir. And also the first line. Hamilton Beamish started. Is it ver libre? Sir. Doesn't it rhyme? No, sir. I understood you to say that rhymes were an outworn convention. Did I really say that? You did indeed, sir, and a great convenience I found it. It seems to make poetry quite easy. Hamilton Beamish looked at him perplexedly. He supposed he must have spoken the words which the other had quoted, and yet that he should deliberately have wished to exclude a fellow creature from the pure joy of ramming heart with Cupid's dart seemed to him in his present uplifted state inconceivable. Odd, he said. Very odd. However, go on. Officer Garraway went once more through the motions of swallowing something large and sharp, and shut his eyes again. Streets, grim, relentless, sordid streets, miles of poignant streets, east, west, north, and stretching starkly south, sad, hopeless, dismal, cheerless, chilling streets. Hamilton Beamish raised his eyebrows. I paced the mournful streets with aching heart. Why? asked Hamilton Beamish. It is part of my duties, sir. 
Each patrolman is assigned a certain portion of the city as a beat. I mean, why do you pace with aching heart? Because it is bleeding, sir. Bleeding? You mean your heart? Yes, sir. My heart is bleeding. I look at all the sordid gloom and sorrow, and my heart bleeds. Well, go on. It all seems very peculiar to me, but go on. I watch gray men slink past with shifty sidelong eyes that gleam with murderous hate, lepers that prowl the streets. Hamilton Beamish seemed about to speak, but checked himself. Men who once were men, women that once were women, children like weasoned apes, and dogs that snarl and snap and growl and hate, streets, loathsome festering streets, I pace the scabrous streets and long for death. Officer Garroway stopped and opened his eyes, and Hamilton Beamish, crossing the room to where he stood, slapped him briskly on the shoulder. "'I see it all,' he said. "'What's wrong with you as liver? Tell me, have you any local pain and tenderness?' "'No, sir.' "'High temperature accompanied by shiverings and occasional rigors?' "'No, sir.' "'Then you have not a hepatic abscess. All that is the matter, I imagine, is a slight sluggishness in the esophageal groove, which can be set right with calomel.' My dear Garraway, it surely must be obvious to you that this poem of yours is all wrong. It is absurd for you to pretend that you do not see a number of pleasant and attractive people on your beat. The streets of New York are full of the most delightful persons. I have noticed them on all sides. The trouble is that you have been looking on them with a bilious eye. But I thought you told me to be stark and poignant, Mr. Beamish. Nothing of the kind. You must have misunderstood me. Starkness is quite out of place in poetry. A poem should be a thing of beauty and charm and sentiment and have as its theme the sweetest and divinest of all human emotions, love. Only love can inspire the genuine bard. Love, Garraway, is a fire that glows and enlarges until it warms and beams upon multitudes, upon the universal heart of all, and so lights up the whole world and all nature with its generous flames. Shakespeare speaks of the ecstasy of love, and Shakespeare knew what he was talking about. Ah, better to live in the lowliest cot, Garraway, than pine in a palace alone. In peace, love tones the shepherd's reed, in war he mops the warrior's steed. In halls in gay attire is seen, in hamlets dances on the green. Love rules the court, the camp, the grove, and men below and saints above, for love is heaven and heaven is love. Get these simple facts into your silly fat head, Garraway, and you may turn out a poem worth reading. If, however, you are going to take this absurd attitude about festering streets and scabrous dogs and the rest of it, you are simply wasting your time and would be better employed writing subtitles for the motion pictures. Officer Garraway was not a man of forceful character. He bowed his head meekly before the storm. I see what you mean, Mr. Beamish. I should hope you did. I have put it plainly enough. I dislike intensely this modern tendency on the part of young writers to concentrate on corpses and sewers and despair. They should be writing about love. I tell thee love is nature's second son, Garraway, causing a spring of virtues where he shines. All love is sweet, given or returned, common as light as love and its familiar voice wearies not ever. True love is the gift which God has given to man alone beneath the heaven. It is not, mark this, Garraway, it is not fantasy's hot fire, whose wishes soon as granted die. It liveth not in fierce desire, with fierce desire it does not die. It is the secret sympathy, the silver link, the silken tie, which heart to heart and mind to mind, in body and in soul can bind. Yes, sir. Exactly, Mr. Beamish. I quite see that. And go away and rewrite your poem on the lines I have indicated. Yes, Mr. Beamish. The policeman paused. Before I go, there was just one other thing. There is no other thing in the world that matters except love. Well, sir, 
There aren't the motion pictures, to which you made a brief allusion just now, and... Garraway, said Hamilton Beamish. I trust that you are not going to tell me that, after all I have done to try to make you a poet. You wish to seek to writing motion picture scenarios? No, sir. No, indeed. But some little time ago I happened to purchase a block of stock in the picture company, and so far all my efforts to dispose of it have proved fruitless. I have begun to entertain misgivings as to the value of these shares, and I thought that, while I was here, I would ask if you knew anything about them. What is the company? The finer and better motion picture company of Hollywood, California, Mr. Beamish. How many shares did you buy? Fifty thousand dollars worth. How much did you pay? Three hundred dollars. You were stung, said Hamilton Beamish. The stock is so much waste paper. Who sold it to you? I have unfortunately forgotten his name. He was a man with a red face and gray hair, and if I'd got him here now, said Officer Gurway with honest warmth, I'd soak him so hard it would jolt his grandchildren. The smooth, self-singing crocodile. It is a curious thing, said Hamilton Beamish musingly. There seems to be floating at the back of my consciousness a sort of nebulous memory having to do with this very stock you mention. I seem to recall somebody at some time and place consulting me about it. No, it's no good. It won't come back. I have been much preoccupied of late, and things slipped my mind. Well, run along, Garraway, and set about rewriting that poem of yours. The policeman's brow was dark. There was a rebellious look in his usually mild eyes. Rewrite it nothing. It's the goods. Garraway? I said New York was full of lepers, and so it is. Nasty, oily, lop-eared lepers that creep up to a fellow and sell him scabrous stock that's not worth the paper it's printed on. That poem is right, and I don't alter a word of it. No, sir. Hamilton Beamish shook his head. One of these days, Garraway, love will awaken in your heart and you will change your views. One of these days, replied the policeman frigidly, I shall meet that red-faced guy again and I'll change his face. It won't be only my heart that'll be aching by the time I've finished with him. End of chapter 7